Well, it's time to wish our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today a very happy birthday on this November 8th. We have one listener we're aware of, Shirley Harvey from Cedar Falls. Shirley, all of us here at Iris would like to wish you a very happy birthday. Just a reminder now, you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so that we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now here's Barb with today's, starting with today's obituaries. Thanks, Dennis. Wayne Lee Howland passed away peacefully on his 90th birthday on Friday, November 3rd. He was born the son of Wilford and Dar- Darlene Poffenberger Howlett in Des Moines. Wayne proudly served his country in the U.S. Army from June 1951 to June 1953. He worked for Firestone for 29 years. He enjoyed Hawkeye sports, music, joking, and time at the lake. <clears throat> He is lovingly survived by his children, Susan Bricker of Altoona and Steve Howlett of Des Moines, his sister Beverly Woods, and many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Wayne was preceded in death by his parents, his beloved wife Dorothy, and daughter Joan. Visitation will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, November 10th, with a memorial service following at 12 p.m. at Hamilton South Town Funeral Home. Condolences may be expressed at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Barbara Jean Knapp lovingly known as Barbie, lost her 12-year battle with leukemia on November 5th in Grimes. Barb was born in Rockford, Illinois, on February 7, 1952, to Art and Jean Bennett. She was the youngest of three siblings, following her brother Jim and sister Bev. She had an idyllic childhood growing up in Rockford. She attended Guilford High School, where, along with other activities, she was a cheerleader. It's not surprising to those who knew her that she was once a cheerleader, since she was known to lift everyone up in life with her bubbly personality. Barb remained very close to her dear high school friends. After high school graduation, Barb headed to Des Moines to attend Drake University. Her path in college was soon altered, when one day she walked into Bowdoin Bendor, a neighborhood clothing store, and met a handsome young salesman, Bob Knapp. He proceeded to sweep her off her feet, even after their first dates were spent delivering pigs from the back of his pickup truck and him spilling a pitcher of beer on her at Mama Lacona's. After a short courtship, they were married on November 24, 1971. Bob and Barb were the consummate couple who loved to entertain, relishing their many friendships. They were blessed with four children, Brian, Brady, B.J., and Bailey. Brian was born with eye complications which resulted in blindness. Barb met this challenge with love and patience, and at times with a much-needed sense of humor. Barb lit up the room with her smile. She was beautiful in every sense of the word, easily remembered by her red hair and freckles. She had an infectious laugh and was the happiest when surrounded by family and friends. Many friendships flourished within the confines of the birthday club, investment club, and book club. Barb was active for many years in a tennis group where she made lifelong friends. Bob and Barb were active members of Hyperion Field Club, where Barb was able to share her many talents, helping with her children's activities and other club events. She was a member of Meredith Drive Reformed Church, The Bridge. <coughs> One of her most rewarding endeavors was to, mold, was to model with a group of gals for special events around the metro area. Later in life, a close group of friends started meeting at the Greenbrier in Johnston on Wednesday nights to talk, share, and laugh also enjoying hours-long lunches with her many friends. 
During her journey with cancer, these gatherings became her lifeline and support. Even if she wasn't feeling well, she would show up with a smile on her face. Barb had an uncanny knack for memorizing the dates of birthdays. She could recall them in one sitting, much to the delight of her friends. No one loved a celebration more than Barb. Barb loved to travel and made many precious memories in Jamaica, Palm Desert, Colorado, Florida, and her beloved Lake Panorama. Barb enjoyed creating a warm and cozy home, using lots of black and white in her decor, along with her beautiful collection of Mackenzie Childs. Barb was devoted to her sweet dog, Berkeley, and Berkeley was devoted to Barb. She was a perfect buddy and lap partner. There is no doubt that Barb gained her greatest joy from her grandchildren. She lovingly referred to them as her kiddos. In addition to dealing with cancer, Barb had two other tragic losses in her life, when Brian died at age 14 from leukemia and the loss of Bob in 2014. She dealt with both with a steadfast faith and grace. The family would like to thank Dr. Daniel Baroker for his tender care of Barb. Her dear friends are stayed by her during her stay in Omaha and Unity Point Hospice that made it possible to spend her last days at home surrounded by her family. Barb leaves behind three children, Brady, Weeder, B.J. Knapp, and Bailey Knapp, her grand five grandchildren, sister-in-law Kathy Knapp, and brother-in-law Rich Evans, and numerous nieces and nephews. She was predeceased by her parents, sister Bev Evans, her son Brian, Bob, Bob, and sister-in-law Debbie Knapp Frisk. In accordance with Barb's wishes, Barry will be in Glendale Cemetery. Memorial contributions can be made to the Variety, the Children's Charity. Celebration of Life will be held at 1 p.m. Friday, November 10th, at the Bridge Church on Northwest 67th Avenue in Johnston. Visitation will follow at Trostel's Greenbrier on Merle Hay Road in Johnston until 5 p.m. Cecil Murphy of Des Moines passed away peacefully and surrounded by loved ones at the age of 80 on Sunday, November 5th, after many victories against health issues. Cesar grew up in North Dakota, honorably served in the Army in Vietnam, and was a legal administrator for Ailey's Law Firm in Des Moines. He is survived by his longtime wife, Donna, of 51 years. Their three children, Cassie, Sean, and Dan, brothers, brother Patrick, five grandchildren, and many wonderful relatives and friends. He is preceded in death by Sister Celeste and brother John. Cecil was compassionate, knowledgeable of world issues, and taught people to think. He ran marathons, coached youth for sports, could play the piano and sing, and enjoyed retirement fishing up north with family. You will be missed by all who knew him. Thank you to the University of Chicago, Iowa Methodist, and to you, to you for reading. The visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, November 8th, at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home in Urbandale. The funeral mass will be at, 1, at 10 a.m. on Thursday, November 9th, at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Des Moines. In lieu of flowers, send contributions to Iowa PBS, Post Office Box 6400 in Johnston, Iowa, 50131. A full obituary can be viewed at caldwellparish.com. Teresa Jean Westmiller died on November 4th in Grinnell, Iowa. Jean was born on October 26, 1934 in Paxton, Illinois, to Claude and Vera Stein. She was graduated from Paxton High School as valedictorian and went on to receive B.A. and M.A. degrees from the University of Illinois, earning membership in Phi Beta Kappa and a place on the bronze tablet for scholarship excellence. She married William Lewis Moismiller of Gibson City in June of 1957. 
Jean taught English in high schools in Illinois before moving with her family to Cornell, Iowa, where she established a small business. She was an active member of the League of Women Voters in the IGCA. She was preceded in death by her husband, Bill. She is survived by a daughter, Anne of Denver, Iowa, a son, Paul, of Minneapolis, Minnesota, two grandchildren, and a sister, Margaret, of Madison, Wisconsin. Cremation has taken place at Smith Funeral Home in Grinnell, and no visitation is planned. A memorial service will be held by the family at a later date. Donations in Jean's name may be directed to the Drake Library or to the League of Women Voters and mailed in Kara Smith Funeral Home, Post Office Box 368, Grinnell, 50112. Dorothy Louise Doolittle Holmes, age 87, passed away Monday, November 6th. Dorothy was born April 6, 1936, in Indianola. She worked for the State of Iowa in the Department of Revenue and Finance, retiring after 30 years. She enjoyed working in her yard, puzzles, word searches, taking care of family horses, and visiting with patrons at Kids Fest. She is survived by her sister, Beverly Kozlarich of Indianola, daughters Donna Davis of Des Moines and Carol Renda of Altoona, four grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, five great-great-grandchildren, and her pet dog, Acorn. Dorothy was preceded in death by her husband, Earl Holmes, two sisters, and five brothers. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, November 9th at Hamilton's near Highland Memory Gardens on Northwest 60th Avenue. Funeral service will begin at 10 a.m. Friday, November 10th, also at Hamilton's, with burial at Highland Memory Gardens. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family in loving memory of Dorothy. Condolence may be expressed at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Continuing with the obituaries, Burl J. Bud Summers, 98, of Newton, passed away Saturday morning, November 4th, at his home in rural Newton. Funeral services for Bud are planned for 11 a.m. Thursday, November 9th at Pence Reese Funeral Home in Newton, who was entrusted with the arrangements. Visitation will be Thursday, November 9th at 10 a.m. until service time at the funeral home. Burial will be in the Palo Alto, Palo Alto Cemetery, rural Newton, with military services by Newton American Legion Post 111. Memorials may be left to the Newton United Presbyterian Church. Bud was born August 23, 1925, in Newton, to James Israel and Hazel Esther Snook Summers. He was a graduate of the Newton Senior High School class of 1944. On May 27, 1963, Bud was united in marriage with Patricia Jo Holmes in Des Moines. Bud had served his country with the U.S. Navy during World War II, from February 21, 1944, until May 22, 1946. Six as electrician's mate third class, serving on the USSS Enterprise. He was self-employed as a farmer for many years and was a co-owner of Custom Gutters Eve Spouting from 1975 to 1990, retiring in 2004. He was a member of the United Presbyterian Church, serving as trustee and session member for the Palo Alto and Amboy Grange, serving as steward and gatekeeper, a member of the USS Enterprise Association, the Newton American Legion Post 111, and he enjoyed socializing with friends. But is survived by his wife of 60 years, Pat, his son David Robin Summers, a daughter Rachel Beth Summers, a grandson Jordan David Summers, a sister Margaret Jean Kimler, and a sister-in-law Darlene Summers, and his many extended family and friends. Bud was preceded in death by his parents, a brother Glenn William Summers, a sister, 
and a daughter-in-law, Marjorie and Paul Burgess, and daughter-in-law, Sam Brant Summers. Condolences may be left at www.pencefh.com. Robert W. Sheeler, William Bob Sheeler, passed away to his eternal rest on November 5th at Newton Village in Newton at the age of 93. Visitation will be on Wednesday, November 8th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Monroe United Methodist Church. A public Masonic service will be, had at, be held at 6 p.m. A celebration of life service will be held on November 9th at 10 a.m. at the church with luncheon to follow. Private family internment will be held on November 11th at Silent City Cemetery in Monroe. Military rites will be conducted by Fred Slayton Post, number 363 American Legion, and the Iowa Army National Guard Honor Escort. Bob was born on July 19, 1930, at the family home east of Monroe to Howard W. and Angelina Lily Van Bale Sheeler. He was the third of seven children. He graduated from Monroe Community High School in 1948. In 1950, he began employment with the Jasper County Secondary Roads Department and worked there for the next 45 years. In 1952, he was drafted into the United States Army and received his basic training at Fort Riley, Kansas. He served in the 43rd Quartermaster Company based in Augsburg, Germany. In 2011, he was honored to be a participant in the honor flight to Washington, D.C. On October 6th of 1950, he married Beverly E. Woody at Tools Chapel Methodist Church. He and Beverly had two children, Marquet and Wade. He was a member of the Methodist denomination for over 70 years. Bob served as worship master of Fairview Lodge Number 194 in 1969. He later affiliated with Newton Lodge Number 59 and was a member of the Masonic fraternity for 58 years. He was a member of the Newton York Rite Bodies, Des Moines Scottish Rite Consistory, and Zaga Zig Shrine. Bob was also a member of the Fred Slayton Post Number 363 American Legion. Bob is survived by his wife of 38 years, Nona Kane, his son Wade Sheeler, Nona's children Sam, Kane, Kathy Renault, Christy Clark, Candy Rhodes, and Kim Thomas. He is also survived by 15 grandchildren and 17 great-grandchildren. He was predeceased by his parents, five sisters, Mary Kingdon, Kathleen Jackson, Martha Brayton, Joanne Sheeler, and Gladys DeJude, and one brother, Ivan. He was also predeceased by his wife, Beverly, and infant daughter, Marquet. During retirement, he and Nona enjoyed wintering in Alamo, Texas, and other travels, and he enjoyed woodworking, yard work, and his grandchildren. Memorial donations may be made to the Monroe Fire Department or the Monroe United Methodist Church. Bob's motto in life was, it will all work out. Linda K. Jering passed away in the early morning of November 1st after a five-month battle with cancer. Linda was 64 years old. Linda was preceded in death by her parents, Leo and Audrey Avessing, and her in-laws, Robert and Helen Jaring. She is survived by her husband, Stephen, her son, Ian, her daughter-in-law, Hannah, her siblings, Mike Avessing, Sue Thone, and Kathy Wang, Tom Avessing, and several beloved cousins, nieces, and nephews. A public memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, November 10th at St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Des Moines. 
In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Animal Rescue League of Iowa, the Food Bank of Iowa, and Susan G. Komen. Donna Lou Stuck, 79, passed away peacefully at home in the early morning hours on Friday, November 3rd. A celebration of life will be held at the bridge at 125 Northwest 2nd, 62nd Avenue, Johnston, on Sunday, November 12th, at 2.30 p.m. Visitation will be from 1.30 p.m. until service time. Burial will be on Monday at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery. Donna was born July 31, 1944, in Waterloo, Iowa, to Herbert and Wilma Moeller. She graduated from Hudson High School in 63. She then moved to Des Moines and began working at Iowa Methodist Center as a CNA. She retired from Iowa Methodist in 1999. On February 5th of 1966, she married Jack Stuck, and they later welcomed two children, Dawn and Christopher. Donna enjoyed crocheting, quilting, and listening and or watching anything related to Elvis Presley. Most of all, she enjoyed watching her three grandsons, Tyler, Trevor, and Tanner, who she was incredibly proud of. She also made sure to attend all their soccer, football, and school events. She is survived by her children, Dawn Young, Christopher Stuck, grandsons Tyler Young, Trevor Young, and Tanner Young, great-granddaughter Olivia, and her sister Carol Jablinski. She was preceded in death by her husband, Jack Stuck, and parents Herbert and Wilma Moeller, and her twin sister, Diana Sue. Loretta M. Bruschetto, 88, passed away peacefully on November 4th. A funeral mass will be held at 9 a.m. Saturday, November 11th at St. Mary of Nazarene Catholic Church in burial following at Glendale Cemetery. Loretta was born September 6, 1935 in Chicago, Illinois, and graduated from Trinity High School in River Forest, Illinois. Loretta worked, with the, or worked for the Sears Corporation for many years, enjoying friendships she made there but her primary focus was always her family. No matter the occasion, most important to her was that her family was together, sharing laughs and making memories. Her selflessness was truly the foundation and strength of her family. She was loved and admired by many and will be deeply missed. Loretta is survived by her five children, Bob, Bud, Jim, Mike, and Laura Pike. Her 12 grandchildren, Tony, Zach, Jessica, Ben, Katie, Colleen, Beth, Lexi, Gia, Nick, Brian, and Jenny. Her great-grandchildren, Henry, Loretta, Margot, Giovanni, Ezekiel, and Mia. She was preceded in death by her husband, Dave, her parents, William and Loretta Kenny, and her brothers, Bob and Jerome. Family will be receiving friends from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. on Friday, November 10th at Isles Westover Funeral Home at 6337 Hickman Road in Des Moines. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the St. Croix Hospice at 1555 Southeast Delaware Avenue, number Q, Ankeny, Iowa, or to the Deerfield Community Foundation at 1373-1 Hickman Road in Urbandale. Jerry Gosson, on July 24th, was born on July 24th, 1959, and passed away on November 5th, 2023. Jerry was a great husband and even better father and grandfather. He was a huge lifetime fan of the Miami Dolphins. Win it for Jerry this year. Jerry recently retired from altar recycling. He is survived by his wife, Becky, his children, Rachel Miller, Shannon Wolver, Matthew Gosson, Leslie Blakely, and three grandchildren, 
Jerry, was preceded in death by his parents, Frank and Claire Gosden, his sister Shirley, and his brother Frank. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Funeral service will be held on Thursday, November 9th at the 11 o'clock a.m. at Sunset Memorial Chapel. A visitation will be one hour prior at 10 a.m. Thanks, Dennis. That concludes today's obituaries. Returning to national news, court mulls domestic abuser gun ban. The Supreme Court on Tuesday signaled it would likely uphold a law banning domestic abusers from owning guns, even as justices were wrestling with how such a ruling might affect other challenges to gun laws under the Second Amendment. In one of the most closely watched Supreme Court cases of the term, a Texas man named Zaki Rahimi is asking the justices to throw out his conviction under a federal law that bars people from possessing guns if they are the subject of a domestic violence restraining order. The decision could have sweeping implications for other gun laws if it clarifies the standard by which those prohibitions are judged. The Rahimi case has once again thrust the Supreme Court into the nation's roiling political debate over guns and mass shootings, such as the one in Maine last month. The court, in recent years, has tended to side with gun rights advocates. Underscoring the significance of the case, hundreds of gun safety and domestic violence prevention advocates rallied outside the Supreme Court, holding signs that read, Moms Demand Action or Students Demand Action. Actor Julianne Moore and Gabby Giffords, the former Arizona representative who was shot in 2011, attended the rally. One of the questions before the Supreme Court was how to consider a situation like domestic violence in which there was essentially no law on the books when the Second Amendment was enacted. During roughly 90 minutes of argument, several of the court's conservative judges appeared skeptical of the idea pressed by Rahimi's lawyer that a Second Amendment case last year left the government virtually no room to confiscate guns from dangerous people. In that decision, NYSRPA versus Bruin, the court ruled the gun regulations must be consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Even Second Amendment rights groups acknowledged that Rahimi, who was involved in five shootings in 2020 and 2021, probably should not have access to guns. But those groups, including the National Rifle Association, argue that confiscation should follow conviction. The federal law that bars people from owning guns because of a restraining order is inconsistent with the way courts have hysterically, historically viewed the punishment, those groups say. Gun control groups say that even if the framers didn't ban domestic abusers from owning guns, there was historical precedent for banning guns from people who were considered dangerous. Guns and domestic abuse are a deadly combination, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar said in her opening remarks. Throughout our nation's history, legislatures have disarmed those who have committed serious criminal conduct or whose access to guns poses a danger. Much of the discussion focused on that idea. You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Chief Justice John Roberts asked J. Matthew Wright, the federal public defender representing Rahimi. Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means, Wright responded. Well, I mean someone who's shooting, you know, at people, Roberts said. That's a good start. Wright argued that Biden administration misread the Supreme Court's precedent in Bruin. It feels like what the government is doing is looking down the dark well of American history and seeing only a reflection of itself and saying that's what history shows, Wright told the, the justices. 
There is no historical tradition, he said, for banning guns from people in Rohimi's situation, and outright bans by Congress are different from removing guns temporarily from people who appear to be a danger to themselves or others. Defending the federal law, Prelger also faced sharp questioning from the court's conservatives about the scope of her argument that people who are not responsible or dangerous can be barred from gun ownership. Is someone who drives 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, does that person qualify as law-abiding or not, Roberts asked. It seems to me that the problem with responsibility is that it's extremely broad. What seems irresponsible to some people might seem like, well, that's not a big deal to others. The distinction, Prelger said, is grounded in the concept of dangerousness. Laws that intend to remove guns from people the government deems dangerous, she said, are consistent with the nation's history and the Second Amendment. Much of the discussion from both the liberal and conservative justices focused on the potential spillover of a decision in either direction. Justice Helena Kagan questioned Wright on whether his theory would allow the government to remove guns from people who are mentally ill. Maybe, Wright said. I feel like you're running away from your argument, Caden responded, because the implications of your argument are just so untenable. Wright said he was instead running away from the legal test courts had embraced before Bruin, balancing the government's interest to regulate guns in some circumstances against the right to carry arms. Wright said he was resting the argument on the new history-based standard the Supreme Court set a year ago. The court's decision is expected next year. I'm going to take now a look at some shorts from the 50 states from Kentucky, from Louisville. With the end of daylight savings time and earlier nightfall, pedestrian fatalities are likely to rise. The State Transportation Cabinet's Office of Highway Safety said there have been 69 pedestrian deaths in the state this year, 49 of them after dark. From Monroe, Louisiana, prosecutors have dropped charges against a state trooper accused of withholding body camera footage that shows another officer dragging black motorist Ronald Green by his ankle shackles during his 2019 arrest. From Massachusetts, Worcester, a Palestinian flag will fly at City Hall for a week, and those who requested it say it's a message of peace amid the war between Israel and Hamas. It follows a one-week display of the Israeli flag. For Big Lake, Minnesota, the key to a sustainable future may be combining solar power and farming. Just ask the participants of a pilot project to boost agrivoltaics in which farmers graze livestock or raise crops under or around solar arrays, NPR News reported. From Jackson, Mississippi, federal prosecutors say two men have been sentenced for conspiracy to defraud people in a fake timber investment scheme. Investors lost tens of millions of dollars in the ploy, and the men have been ordered to pay $977,045 in restitution. From Kansas City, Missouri, three men have been found dead after a report of carbon monoxide at a home. The Kansas City Fire Department responded to the scene and found the men believed to be in their 20s. From Salem, Oregon. Governor Tina Kotek, along with six state agencies, declared support for the federal government's proposals to allow floating offshore wind energy projects off the state's coast, despite mixed feelings from communities, from the fishing industry, and Native American tribes. And from Houston, Pennsylvania, the state will work with a major natural gas producer to collect in-depth data on air emissions and water quality at well sites, enhance public disclosure of drilling chemicals, and expand buffer zones. State officials are touting the partnership with CNX Resources Corporation as the first of its kind. 
Well, um, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barb DeHeck and Dennis May, and it's been our pleasure to read for you. And now we're going to take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. Welcome back. Your new readers are Patty Daniels and Scott Splavik. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Patty Daniels with our first article. Thank you, Scott. Some liberal advice for GOP candidates. <coughs> Excuse me. Written for us by our buddy Rex Hopke. This week, the GOP presidential hopefuls who are secretly praying Donald Trump gets, goes to prison, I'm sorry, will meet in Miami for the party's third and possibly most useless yet primary debate. The former president and proud criminal defendant, 
will once again not be in attendance, claiming he's so far ahead in the polls that all debates should be canceled and he should be crowned MAGA king of all Republicans or something to that effect. That leaves a group of at least five candidates who should be embarrassed they're not beating the snot out of a twice-impeached, one-term president facing 91 state and federal charges. The five who have said that they've qualified for the debate are former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and rich, annoying person Vivek Ramaswamy. As a liberal fellow, I can't imagine three Republicans care much about my advice, but I'm going to give it to them anyway. Donald Trump, you're doing great, buddy. I'm loving the scowling courtroom appearances in your Manhattan fraud trial. Those really drive home the I'm an angry guy in a lot of legal trouble vibe and remind voters of your administration's daily chaos and circus-like atmosphere. Also, your conspiratorial, near incoherent ramblings on social media and at rallies are going a long way toward making President Joe Biden's age a non-issue. People are slowly recognizing they can have an 80-year-old Democrat who makes some occasional gaffes and walks a bit slower but generally acts nice enough. Or they can have a babbling, foul-mouthed, 77-year-old raging Republican narcissist whose omelet seems to have slid off his brunch plate. You keep doing you, Donnie. And Ron DeSantis. Hey, listen, I don't want to sound mean or anything, but I think it's time to send this campaign of yours to an anti-woke farm upstate. You've been trying and failing to out-Trump Donald Trump for months, and you just keep tripping on your own weird boots. This past week, one of your spokespeople shared a picture of DeSantis-branded golf balls on social media and called out people on the former president's re-election campaign, writing, Team Trump, men, if you ever decide to man up, you and your boss can buy a pair of balls here. Dude, come on. That's just an embarrassing way to never become president. And while I'm 100% in favor of your embarrassing yourself until the end of time, because I don't like you and I think you're a mean-spirited bully, I'm taking the high road and suggesting you cash in your chips and go back to being an obnoxious governor who legislates via right-wing memes. It's what you're good at. Tim Scott, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Chris Christie, I respect the New Jersey fight and the swagger, and I'd I'd be mad too if... Trump had said all those things about me, but Republican voters are more likely to vote for me than for you, and at this point you're just making noise and burning money. To quote Bruce Springsteen, You can hide neath your covers and steady your pain. Make crosses from your lovers, throw roses in the rain. But you're still gonna lose. Nikki Haley 
Shine on you, Crazy Diamond, with sold, excuse me, solid performance in the previous debates and a surge in the polls, you look like the GOP's only hope for finding a candidate not named Trump, and quite possibly the only Republican candidate with a solid chance of beating Biden. While I disagree with virtually everything you say and stand for, I would honestly be glad to see you come out on top in the primary. The reason? I don't think Trump can get elected again, but I also cannot say with certainty he won't get elected again. Biden is absolutely going to be vulnerable, and if that's the case, I'd rather have someone on the Republican ticket who at least seems marginally sane, given that the person could wind up running the country. Again, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, I don't like you politically, but I would not fear for our democracy if you became president, and that's the current near-subterranean bar. I wouldn't mind winning the primary and then losing the general election. A grateful nation would thank you. And Vivek Ramaswamy, just just go. I mean, you're really, can, can we just not? Please, good Lord. You can follow um, USA Today columnist Rex Hupke on X, formerly Twitter, Rex Hupke, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Rex A. Jerk. Thank you, Patty. Our next opinion is entitled Push for Action on Birth Equity, Save Black Moms. It's written by Janine Valerie Logan, who is a leader in residence at Chicago Beyond and a birth equity champion who works to address inequities in black maternal health. She received a Bachelor of Arts from Fisk University and a Master of Science in Nursing from DePaul University. She also received a Master of Public Health with a concentration in global reproductive health from George Washington University. I became a midwife after working as a doula for 10 years. I came into the work with the knowledge and concern for the lack of safety that is espoused to black women and birthing people that I witnessed while attending births within institutions that have and continue to perpetuate harm in birthing spaces. I have witnessed disregard, distrust, and racialized obstetric trauma that leaves black birthing people feeling unheard, helpless, enraged, and physically and emotionally violated. In the years since I began this work, the outcomes for black birthing people are continually worse, all while garnering more and more attention in the public, but without focus on solutions, community birth, and black midwives. The staggering black maternal mortality rate in the United States, in which black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women, highlights the deeply entrenched racial disparities within our healthcare system. In Chicago, the place I reside, that rate is doubled. Black women are six times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes. How do we improve care? The pursuit of birth equity, the promise of optimal conditions for birthing individuals, remains an unattained goal for black women and birthing people across the nation. 
The recent closure of the Seoul Birth Center in Illinois with a black midwife on staff serves as a stark reminder of the urgent need to address this crisis. As we grapple with these challenges, it prompts a larger question. In a landscape lacking accessible birth centers and black midwives, how can we ensure essential care for black women and birthing individuals nationwide? This issue's significance reverberates beyond a single city. Every year, numerous black women across both metropolitan and rural areas throughout the country face the complexities of pregnancy, desperately seeking safe and equitable maternal health care. According to a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the wealthiest black woman in California is at a higher risk of maternal mortality than the least wealthy white woman. While the term birth equity echoes in our discourse, its true implementation remains distant. Progress has eluded us. Instead, we find ourselves regressing. Since the year 2019, multiple regions in the United States have witnessed alarming declines in maternal health care options. These include reductions in hospital labor and delivery units, as well as diminished access to out-of-hospital midwifery care. The disparities in health care for black and brown communities are a testament to systemic discrimination. We need more black midwives. The shortage, the shortage of black midwives nationwide in the year 2021 report found that only 7% of certified nurse midwives and certified midwives identified as black or African American is an affront to the black birthing community. This persists despite the fact that black midwives have been shown to improve maternal health outcomes and the quality of health care that people of color receive. This is not birth equity. It is a systemic disregard for black lives. Black women and birthing individuals are enduring exploitation, negligence, and systemic harm, and injustice that demands our immediate attention and concerted action. In the face of this crisis, I stand as a black midwife who continues to bear witness to countless stories of needless black maternal and infant deaths. My own experience has fueled my commitment to rectify this disparity by starting the Chicago Southside Birth Center, a nonprofit community-focused black midwife-led birth center on Chicago's South Side. The Chicago Southside Birth Center will help address inequities in birth outcomes by providing culturally-centered midwifery care alongside families and within the community to promote wellness and abundance in whole health. It is our commitment to disrupt these maternal health outcomes for black birthing people and their families. This important systemic change work has led me to partner with Chicago Beyond, an organization dedicated to transforming the lives of younger of young individuals through holistic investments in education, safety, community development, and health. Recently at the Clinton Global Initiative to 2023 meeting, Chicago Beyond announced a $2 million investment in a new Black Maternal Health Fellows program to spearhead transformative change in maternal health care across America. Chicago Beyond is actively seeking partners to join the program and help catalyze a total of $5 million in funding for Black maternal health leaders over the course of four years. 
Together, we are changing the landscape of black maternal health and black and birth justice, starting with Chicago's South Side, with an initiative aimed at delivering community-oriented solutions to the historical disinvestment in the well-being of black families and community members. Transform rhetoric into reality. Support through funding and activism of black-led maternal health organizations such as the Chicago Southside Birth Center will play a pivotal role in establishing and sustaining community-centered birth centers. Additionally, advocating for a legislative increase in Medicaid or state reimbursement specifically designated for birth centers led by black people Indigenous people and people of color is essential to ensure equitable access to quality care for all, especially for black women and birthing individuals. The time for action is now. We demand change and accountability from the institutions that have neglected us for too long. It is our collective duty to transform the rhetoric of birth equity into a reality where every black woman and birthing individual receive the care they need and deserve. Thank you, Scott. I believe it is time to start the sports for the register. And that begins with the TV sports. And I'm going to read those to you. Sports on TV. Wednesday, that's today, November 8th. All times are Eastern. College football, 7 p.m. CBSSN, Bowling Green at Kent State. ESPNU, Akron at Miami, Ohio. 7.30 p.m. ESPN2, Eastern Michigan at Toledo. College soccer, men's, uh, 6 p.m. ACCN, Atlantic Coast Tournament. North Carolina at Syracuse, semifinal. 8 p.m. ACCN, Atlantic Coast Tournament. Louisville at Clemson, semifinal. College Volleyball Women's, 8 p.m., CEC, yes, that's right, CECN, South Carolina at Mississippi State. Horse Racing, 12 a.m. Thursday, FS2, Oaks Day, from Flemington Racecourse, Flemington, Australia. IMH, no, IHF Hockey Women's, 9.30 p.m., NHLN Rivalry Series, U.S. versus Canada, Tempe, Arizona. NBA Basketball, 7.30 p.m. ESPN, San Antonio at New York. 10 p.m. ESPN, Golden State at Denver. NHL Hockey, 7.30 p.m. TNT, Florida at Washington. 10 p.m. TNT, Los Angeles at Vegas. Soccer, men's, 2.55 p.m., CBSSN, UEFA, Champions League Group Stage, Inter Milan, at Red Bull Salzburg, Group D. 7 p.m., FS1, MLS, Playoff, Philadelphia, Union at New England, Game 2. Tennis, 4 p.m., Mets AP Sophia ATP Early Rounds, Billie Jean King Cup Finals, France versus Italy, Spain versus Canada. Eight, oh, excuse me, six AM, 
tennis, men's ATP, Sophia ATP early rounds, Billie Jean King Cup finals, France versus Italy, Spain versus Canada. Thank you, Patty. Next, I'll read an article entitled Previews and Predictions for Iowa State Semifinals. This has to do with the high school football playoffs. It's written by Alyssa Hurdle of the Des Moines Register. There are only two weeks remaining in the Iowa high school football season. Semifinals run Wednesday through Saturday this week, and championship games will be held November 16th through 17th. We're back with another round of predictions this week. Throughout the season, we made educated guesses about the results of some high school games. Typically, we pick 10 games each week. For the semifinals, we have predictions for all 14 games. Through the regular season, we went 69-30 and 30 in our predictions. In the first two rounds of the playoffs, we went 13-7. and 7. That's a 82-37 and 37 record overall. So here are the predictions for Class 5A. Southeast Polk versus Valley at 4 p.m. on Friday. These two teams met in the season opener, a rematch of the 2022 Class 5A state title game, and Southeast Polk won that matchup 28 or 24 to 18. Because of injuries early in the year, Valley looks like a very different team now, but that might not be enough to get past the Rams' defense. So the prediction is Southeast Polk a winner with a score of 35 to 14. Ankeny versus Ankeny Centennial takes place at 7 p.m. on Friday. There probably isn't a better rematch in the semifinals. Ankeny beat Centennial 39-38 in double overtime in the regular season, and both teams have grown a lot since that game. Let's go with the Hawks in this one, too, since they've played gritty, defensive football and held their own against some of the top teams. The prediction, Ankeny wins 21-18. In Class 4A, Lewis Central versus North Polk takes place 4 p.m. Thursday. North Polk is playing really good football right now, but with Brady Hetzel, Brody Batlin, and Curtis White in off, on offense and a disruptor on defense like Owen Thomas, Lewis Central just seems to have an edge in this one. The prediction is Lewis Central wins 34-21. to Western Dubuque versus Bondurant Farrar, 7 p.m. Thursday. The Blue Jays were flying high before injury after injury forced this team into a tough spot. Now in the semifinals for the first time in program history, things won't get easier, especially with Grant Glosser and Brock Carpenter in Bondurant Farrar's way. Bondurant Farrar winning this game is the prediction with a score of 28-24. to Class 3A. Bishop Helan versus Creston takes place at 4 p.m. on Saturday, and the prediction is that Bishop Helan will win 33 to 26. Williamsburg versus Solon at 7 p.m. on Saturday, with a prediction of Williamsburg winning the game 17 to 13. Class 2A Van Meter versus Monticello takes place at 10 a.m. Saturday morning, and it looks like they're predicting Van Meter to win that game 28 to 20. And Central Lion George Little Rock versus Spirit Lake takes place at 1 p.m. on Saturday with uh, Central Lion as the predicted winner, 42-28. to 28. Class 1A, Grundy Center versus Columbus Catholic, 10 a.m. Friday. Grundy Center is predicted to win that game, 28-20. to 20. Underward versus MFL Marmac takes place at 1 p.m. Friday. 
with Underwood predicted to win 24-17. Class A, Madrid versus West Hancock, 10, p- 10 a.m. Thursday. Madrid is predicted to win with a score of 20-14. to 14. Woodbury Central versus East Buchanan uh, at 1 p.m. on Thursday, and it looks like Woodbury Central is predicted to win that one, 35 to 28. And in eight-man football, Winfield Mountain Union versus Bishop Garrigan is at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. It looks like Winfield Mount Union is given the edge, 36 to 24. And Bedford versus Gladbrook Rhinebeck at 1 p.m. on Wednesday with Bedford, the predicted winner, with a score of 44 to 36. Thank you, Scott. I have just a little bit of time, so I'm just kind of going to do headline reading. And I want you to know that Drake sinks a 15 three-pointers in season opening win. And so they opened a new season with a striking performance from long range in rolling past St. Thomas as, uh, oh gosh, they, be- they beat him uh, 94 269 at the Knapp Center. And this is part of the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament, of course. And the big stars were Shannon Forshell and Anna Brown and... Oh, lady, I can't remember. I can't get her first name, but it's Katie Dinnevere and somebody named Berg. And then they're going to St. Louis for a game at 7 p.m. That's tomorrow, Thursday. Then hosts Iowa State at 2 p.m. Sunday. All right, let's move on to Dear Abby. Dear Abby is entitled Grandparents Prepare a Final Gift for Thankless Grandchild. Dear Abby, for years we have given generous gifts to our six out-of-town grandchildren and received almost no thanks or acknowledgement. It hurts my feelings because I devote a lot of thought, in addition to money, to choosing something special for each of them. Obviously they don't care, but when we have just sent checks, not knowing what they read, wear, or want, our checks are always cashed. It's the same with gift cards. This year, we will send gifts to their parents, our own children, period. The grandchildren will receive your letters booklet, including the section on writing thank you notes. Please send me six before the end of November. Signed, Ticked Off Granny in Oregon. Dear Ticked Off, Annie, uh, Abby responds, The issue you have raised is one I hear about often from other ticked off readers each year. I'm sorry you didn't mention how old your grandchildren are, because the fault may lie with their parents, who should have taught their children this social skill from the time they were old enough to hold a writing implement. Some people procrastinate because they don't know how to express their feelings via the written word and fear they will say the wrong thing. They mistakenly think that a thank you note must be long and flowery when, in fact, short and to the point is more effective. This is why the How to Write Letters booklet was written. It contains samples of thank you letters for birthday gifts, shower gifts, and wedding gifts, as well as those that arrive around holiday time. It also includes letters of congratulations and ones regarding difficult subjects, such as the loss of a parent, a spouse, or a child. This book can be ordered by sending your name and mailing address, plus a check or money order for $8 U.S. 
dollars. To Dear Abby Letters Booklet, P.O. Box 447, Mount Morris, Illinois, 61054 0447. Shipping and handling are included in the price. With the holiday season fast approaching, this is the perfect time to reply with a handwritten letter, note, or well written email. Although handwritten notes are the gold standard, many folks these days opt to take a shortcut by using technology. While texts may seem cold or terse, they are better than no acknowledgement at all. Thank you, Scott. Dear Abby, I am a 63-year-old bat, uh, excuse me, bisexual, heterosexual, excuse me, heterosexual male who has recently joined an adult dating site to enhance my social and sexual life. A therapist suggested that it would help me to break out of my isolation and heal from the trauma of childhood sexual abuse. Could you please recommend some dating etiquette? What support organizations can assist with my recovery efforts? Looking in the West. Dear Looking... Ask your therapist to suggest some sites you should visit. After you have looked at them, uh, have looked them over, ask your therapist how to proceed. You are paying for emotional support from this person, and this is who should actually assist you with your recovery. If it works, stick with this therapist. If it does not, contact R-A-I-N-N, that's Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network at RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org, to see if you are on the right track. And you can contact Dear Abby at DearAbby.com. Thank you, Patty. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Wednesday, November the 8th, 2023. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Patty Daniels. Earlier, you heard Barb DeHeck and Dennis May. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Iris, the Iowa's first and only radio reading service.